Canada Day 2020 marks the 50th anniversary of the Festival Express show in Winnipeg, captured in the documentary of the same name. Joining me on the phone to talk about it is Winnipeg music historian John Anerson. John, good to speak with you again. Hey, how are you, Kelly? Excellent. Okay, before we get to the Festival Express, for Winnipeg, that show was a piece of a much larger festival puzzle during really what was Winnipeg's Summer of Love, right? Talk to me a bit about some of the other events that were happening that summer. Yeah, it was, uh, it was Manitoba Centennial, you know, 100 years. So there was a lot of different kinds of celebrations. There were a number of, of events, you know, beginning May uh, 24th of May with the Niverville Pop Festival. Which you played at. I did, well, almost. It got rained out. Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> waiting to play. You know, then the Love in a week later, which I did play at. And then uh, Festival Express at the, you know, the beginning of July. And there were, there were a number of local festivals throughout the province, rock festivals, along with, uh, for example, Get Together 70, where they closed off Portage Avenue downtown and had music and arts and crafts and all sorts of stuff. And uh, the Woodlands Rock Festival and Lake Riviera Rock Festival and the Ponderosa Rock Festival. Uh, all these kind of things were happening. So it was, it was an exciting time to be a long-haired hippie teenager in Manitoba that summer. And it was. It was our summer of festivals and, and our summer of love. And it was capped off on uh, August 29th with Man Pop, mm-hmm. which was the big Led Zeppelin Iron Butterfly Festival at uh, the football stadium. So it, it was an exciting year, 1970, for, for, for Manitobans and for, for you know, music coming through Manitoba. We often say that Manitoba is often kind of the flyover for a lot of, a lot of big acts who go from Toronto, fly over Winnipeg, and mm. go on to like Regina or Calgary and Vancouver. But we got to, we got to see some of the best in uh, rock music that summer. Well, I think I was at that uh, Portage Avenue festival throughout that day. I would have been eight years old at the time, and so and living in Westwood. And so I think, as I recall, my brother and I, and he was only a couple of years older, took the bus downtown and just hung out. And I remember it was just sweltering hot, but I'm pretty yeah. sure I was there without parental guidance, by the way, <laughs> which you'd never see nowadays. Now, we're talking about uh, Winnipeg often being talked about as kind of a flyover destination, but of course Festival Express wasn't flying at all. It was the train tour. What was the backstory of the Festival Express tour itself? What was the plan and how did that come to be? Well, it, it really was a unique concept that had never been done before, and as far as I know, has never been done since. And, you know, Canada being so big and so many geographic issues, you know, Canadian Shield, Rockies, all this, to overcome, uh, the idea of putting all these performers on a train and, you know, the, the initial concept was Montreal to Vancouver. You know, like, w- basically, you're kind of crisscrossing, you know, the country. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Montreal show didn't pan out because there were conflicts with uh, the date of it. And that same thing happened with Vancouver. So it ended up being Toronto, Winnipeg, and Calgary. But uh, the idea came through with Ken Walker approached uh, Thor Eaton of the Eaton family, Eaton stores, mm-hmm. who backed it, financially backed it. And the plan was that it would, the budget was for uh, half a million dollars. They thought, or they thought they could put the whole thing together for about $500,000. Well, that's adorable. <laughs> well, of course, they lost a million in the end. <laughs> and, and, you know, it's, uh, I remember reading, well, you know, reading about it later on, and Mickey Hart from The Grateful Dead, you know, he made the comment, Woodstock was for the audience, but Festival Express was for the musicians. And it was to really, I mean, once they loaded all these people on a train, and they had different cars for jamming, they had a blues car, and they had kind of a, a country car, 
and a rock car, you know, for different jam sessions. And in, in, in most cases, these musicians didn't sleep for like three or four days because they were jamming. And on the trip between Toronto and Winnipeg, they had to stop in this little town called Chaplot, Ontario, to uh, refuel the booze. And same thing when they left Winnipeg to head to uh, Calgary. They had to stop twice refuel the booze for the trains. So it was a unique idea, a very different idea, and I can remember you know, hearing about it being hyped in, in, in the late winter, early spring of, of 1970. This train was going to go across Canada with musicians stopping and performing. It almost had that sort of a you know, Renaissance sort of feel to it where, you know, a caravan of, of minstrels and jugglers and troubadours and all this mm-hmm. traveling through, you know, England, the English countryside, the village to village, performing and then kind of moving on from there. So it, it had that rustic feel to it, even though it was a, a very electric and eclectic show. Sure. Well, I'm just surprised they made it from Toronto to Winnipeg. And that's a long train ride. As you say, they had to stop once to refuel the booze. I'm just surprised that any of them lived to get to Winnipeg. <laughs> well, that's true. Wow. I mean, the stories are, are incredible. I did a book on Ian and Sylvia, and Ian told me, he said that, you know, he got into a drinking contest with Janis Joplin somewhere between Toronto and Winnipeg, oh. and he said he was way outmanned on that one. She drank him under the table. And he also remembers he and Jerry Garcia from The Grateful Dead climbing up on one of the train cars and howling like coyotes as it whistled through the Canadian Shield. As one does. <laughs> oh, my God, that's incredible. So Winnipeg becomes the second concert stop of the three cities. The show itself happened at Winnipeg Stadium, but the epicenter of what the Festival Express was celebrating was really Memorial Park that summer. This is where arguably the most famous anecdote about Janis Joplin and Winnipeg happens at Memorial Park, right? Well, it was, it's, it's such a cute little story because the trainer arrived in Winnipeg the day before, June 30th. So, so the performers had you know, the day to, you know, I guess maybe finally get some sleep, take it easy, maybe even take in some local color around here. Uh, Delaney and Bonnie, they went and took a room at, the, at a hotel downtown, mm-hmm. and they got uh, the hotel desk manager and a friend to drive them around Winnipeg. And they went to Polo Park and they went to A&W and downtown and all of that. The Grateful Dead and their crew organized uh, a, a water polo competition and went to a, went to the Pan Am pool on oh, Grand Avenue. You're town at the time. When there's all these burned out uh, hippies swimming and playing water polo and relay races in the Pan Am pool. But Janice had a more Janice Joplin had a more focused interest in what she wanted to do. The train was uh, marshaled at uh, the Union Station, which is the Via Rail Station, and she got off the train and hailed a cab on Main Street and said, take me to where all the hippies are. And so he took her down Broadway to Memorial Park. And, of course, you're correct. Memorial Park was the hangout, the place to be in the 1970s. And, you know, just long-haired types, you know, all over the, the grass and wading into the fountain and all of that sort of thing. And then when you wanted to have something to eat, you just walked over to the bay and went up to the paddle wheel and ate there and then went back to, back to the park. But she came to the park uh, with Eric Anderson, a folk singer, and uh, she waded into the fountain. She thought it was wonderful that she could go into this, you know, wade into this pool, hippies all around, nobody even bothering to notice, and she wasn't arrested. So she thought Winnipeg was a pretty cool place because she said any other city, I would have been arrested for doing that. And, of course, a photo of her was taken. And it's a great photo. Uh, it's often been kind of narrowed down, but when, in its larger sense, the background is the legislative buildings in the Golden Boy. 
Mm-hmm. And then in the, in the foreground, it's Janice being held up by Eric Anderson in the pool with her bare feet. I haven't seen the photo, but has she got her feather boa? And oh, yeah. I think... She's got her feather boa, and she, you know, she's festooned with feathers and costume jewelry and all that. I mean, it's the quintessential Janice Joplin look. Yeah. I'm assuming she didn't go very far anywhere in public without the whole regalia on of who she was and, you know, the performer. So, yeah, she's got, she's got the whole nine yards there. And it's such a classic photo of, you know, again, it typifies the summer of love here in Winnipeg and Manitoba. And there were zero problems, and it is. it is It's kind of a sweet moment yeah. in the life of Manitoba. Now, on the other end of the scale, the Winnipeg show was just a couple of months after the Kent State shootings, and I understand there was a lot of protesting going on in the wake of that tragedy, uh, understandably. And did that factor into the Winnipeg story of the Festival Express, those difficulties as well? It did. Um, this the movement called the May 4th Movement, which was the date, of course, of, of Kent State, uh, it started out in Toronto, and it kind of um, interrupted the performances in Toronto. Uh, Toronto was over two days. And uh, to sort of placate this movement who were protesting the high ticket prices, uh, you know, it, it was $10 in advance, $12 at the gate. $10 to see, because I bought in advance, $10 to see the best artists in music at that point. I mean, Janis Joplin, The mm-hmm. Band, The Grateful Dead, Mountain, in Sylvia's Great Speckled Bird, and on and on, Buddy Guy, for $10. I Outlandish. mean, nowadays you pay $200 to see Fleetwood Mac. Yeah. So, it, But they protested in Toronto, and so the Grateful Dead organized a few of the performers to go play at a, at a park somewhere in Toronto for free. Mm-hmm. And I guess uh, some of the disgruntled people went over and watched it for free. But uh, it it uh, it also reared its head in Winnipeg. And uh, I can remember standing in line at the day the gates opened. I think at around uh, eleven, and the show started, you know, after uh, after twelve. But uh, my girlfriend and I, we got there at 8 because we wanted to get a really good spot on the field. You know, lay down a blanket. We brought a cooler with sandwiches and drinks and whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, making a whole day out of it. And there were these protesters uh, all around, all, all of us in line waiting to get in, decrying this excessive ticket price. It should be free. Make the concert free. Mm-hmm. And uh, they did the same thing in Calgary, too. And the mayor of Calgary, said he, he kind of got into the act and said, well, let's make it free. And then one of his counselors said, yeah, but then let's charge them to get out. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it did disrupt it. Um, and, as, and as it turned out, uh, the festival needed 20,000 people to break even. They had 37,000 in Toronto, so they did okay. Mm-hmm. But um, they needed, Winnipeg needed 20,000 people, and we only got 4,700. So they lost a, a lot of money here in Winnipeg, but it made it a little bit of a cozier uh, concert because you know, there wasn't such a huge crowd. But uh, you know, running a train full of uh, musicians who love to drink is expensive, and I don't think they ever considered that aspect of it. And I guess they assumed that they'd sell out in every city. Only 4,700 people here in Winnipeg, and for, for those acts, was it that ticket price, do you think, that held them away, or why would, why would Winnipeg not show up for that lineup, even at you 10 know, bucks a ticket? I know, but, you know, I mean, 10 bucks, you could, I'm trying to think, but sort of putting it into perspective, ticket prices around then were like 4 or $5, mm-hmm. and so I guess people thought 10 or 12 at the gate that day was uh, excessive or maybe maybe i mean it was it was july 1st holiday maybe everybody was at the lake it was a warm day warm warm uh week that week it boggles my mind to think back on this incredible roster of artists coming here you know to see the band 
I mean, I'd have paid 12 bucks just to see the band back then. Right. Um, and, and it didn't draw a big crowd. It was well advertised because I remember seeing the ads in both newspapers at the time. So it, it, it's hard to explain. And, and, you know, when you watch the movie, which oddly didn't come out for about 30 years after, after the festival, mm-hmm. um, you, you watch the movie and you really get a sense of this, this, these artists were, were at, you know, at the top of their game. It was a great, great show. It was, you know, again, the Winnipeg show went from one o'clock until two in the morning. You know, by the time Janice Joplin finished, it was it was nearing two in the morning, and she was the final act on the show. And you know, everybody played a great, great set individually. So yeah, it's odd. It 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 really is strange and almost an anomaly that Winnipeggers stayed away rather than go. Which probably added to the stress of the uh, man pop uh, promoters later on down the line, right? Well, unless they were really drunk. Yeah, right. Well, I find that hard to believe whether that was happening. Okay, let's talk more specifically about the show itself and the day itself. As you mentioned, you were there with your girlfriend. What's the first thing that comes to mind for you when you think of that day and that show? Sitting in the sun. Nice, you know, I had a, I had a, I don't know, straw hat or something on. Sitting in the sun, you know, on the field, on a blanket. And and just looking up and watching this great roster of entertainment, it was such a positive, happy time. You know, my memories of that uh, remain, uh, you know, that way. Great entertainment, fun, and, you know, I knew some people around me, and just everybody feeling that they were at something special. And now, was it well organized on site? Because some of these things could be a little hit and miss that way, especially in the early days of these festival concert situations. Well, I mean, the, the show ran fairly smoothly. I don't recall having any kind of hiccups, technical hiccups or anything but i think they assumed that bands would be on and off perhaps quicker than they thought and you know unlike woodstock where they had uh, a circular stage and while one performer was playing and with amps and everything they could be setting up the next performer and as soon as like santana ended they could swing around and jefferson airplane could start Mm -hmm. for example didn't have that here or for any of the festival express shows so that there was there was definitely a time element in between uh for doing that but the show ran late i mean uh, it was supposed to be i don't know one to one or midnight to midnight up to midnight or something like that so it did it did run late and i you know i can tell you that by by the time janice came on uh we'd been there since eight in the morning and it was well past midnight when she came on and it was uh we were getting pretty weary, even though it was you know mm-hmm. a great roster. But we weren't going to leave. We were going to miss Janice Joplin. But some people did. I mean, it just seemed like a long, long day for them. At least you didn't have to worry about the brown acid, though. Uh, yes, well, right. yes. Exactly. Now, what about concessions and water and that, that sort of thing? Was it uh, pretty well appointed that way? Yeah, it was. I mean, this was a part of, of Manosphere. And Manosphere mm-hmm. was, uh, for a few years, the name of the Red River Exhibition. So that was going all around. And the midway was down. You know, you could, you could leave the football stadium and walk down the midway. Uh, as long as your hand was stamped, but uh, so so there were there were amenities for people, and there were bathrooms, you know, porta potties for people. Yeah. But what wasn't there was security. I mean, nowadays when you think about going to a concert, the security involved, and you know, not only you're being checked and scanned and searched and everything going in, but the security, like to get backstage or anywhere, is always very tight. But back then, there wasn't security, and and people just even wandered backstage. And the same lack of security 
existed on the train itself. I mean, it, it arrived on the 30th at Union Station, and there was nobody stopping people from getting on the train. You know, I know of a few guys that were my age who managed to just walk on the train. And, and Andy Mellon, who wrote for the Free Press then, he said he walked on the train, sat down, had a drink with Janis Joplin. That's just amazing to think about. Yeah, and, you know, Randy Bachman wandered onto the train, too, and jammed with a few of, uh, of the artists there. That, speaking of Randy Bachman, that's one thing I remember about the concert the next day, was in between when they were setting up uh, a different act, and I can't even remember which act it was, in the lull of setting it all up, this guy wanders out on stage, and he's, he's got a beard, and he's got an acoustic guitar. No introduction, okay? Sits mm-hmm. down on a chair, uh, and not, not center stage, but a little off to the right for, from our perspective, and starts going bum 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 on the guitar and singing, give me an A, do 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 uh-huh. give me an M, do 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 do, I say E, I say R, yeah. do do I say C, and he stopped and realized that he let missed the letter <laughs> I, so he was doing a miracle woman. Yeah. So he gets up and walks off the stage, and mm. I remember turning to my girlfriend and saying, I think that's Randy Bachman. And you know, he was in Winnipeg. He'd left the guest here six months earlier, and I guess yeah. he was kind of hanging out with some of the musicians and decided to go out, or someone asked him to go out, and when he misspelled American Woman, he got embarrassed and left. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> and of course, American Woman at the time was, or it had been a couple of months earlier, number one. That's right. It was iconic even then. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that, the Randy Bachman thing, because one of the reasons he left the Guess Who, as you know, was because of they were living the rock star lifestyle, mm-hmm. and he was he felt like the grandfather or the dad of the group, and he was <laughs> he had become a Mormon, and he had kids at home, and, and that was part of it was he had a problem with that sex drugs and rock and roll lifestyle Mm -hmm. and so there he is now on the train with that motley crew (laughs) of people who are i mean i i know i've heard the story where he had to open the window just to breathe (laughs) and people were passing joints around and they passed one to him and he was just gonna say no thanks to the next guy (laughs) it just seems odd to me that he even got on the train he must have known i well i'm assuming so you know and i I guess too i mean here's a guy who's had the number one song for you know three weeks in may and still Mm -hmm. all over the radio so i guess he felt he was in his element yeah but i'm probably guessing most of them didn't know who he was (laughs) wow (laughs) this guy who won't smoke our dope no kidding (laughs) a couple of other things about the show itself did the drummer of the grateful dead punch out a fan did i read that correctly somewhere it was the drummer from Ian and Sylvia's Great oh. Speckled Bird, ND Smart. And it didn't take place in Winnipeg. It took place in Calgary. Some fan got up and onto the stage and was, I don't know, causing some commotion. So in the middle of the song, without missing a beat, ND Smart put his sticks down, punched the guy out, like yeah. in the face, knocked him out, and then sat down and carried on with the song without missing a beat. <laughs> now, this is all the following year, less than a year, actually, after Altamont. Had yeah. nobody learned anything from Altamont and security? <laughs> Well, maybe they learned after the fact that they did need some security. By the way, further to Randy Bachman, he got up on stage and jammed with Delaney and Bonnie and Friends. Delaney and Bonnie and Friends, uh, an American act, had this reputation for artists coming up and jamming with them. George Harrison jammed with them. Eric Clapton jammed with them. Dave Mason jammed with them. Mm -hmm. So Randy, I guess, invited himself up and uh, sat in. Now, he was playing electric guitar at this point. And Jerry Garcia also came out to jam. So they were there on stage with Delaney and Bonnie and friends. Not that anybody you know, could hear what they were doing or whatever. Yeah. 
But, Wasn't it uh, Delaney that ended up in uh, Derek and the Dominoes? Well, no, it was uh, some of the band that played with Delaney and Bonnie oh, okay. ended up in Derek and the Dominoes. But they had already left by then, so they had a, had a new band. You know, it's interesting that the, the, the guy who ended up driving Delaney and Bonnie around town, uh, he was told by, uh, by Bonnie, and that Delaney and Bonnie were married, mm-hmm. uh, that the reason she wanted to get off the train and get a hotel in town was she wanted to keep Delaney away from Janis Joplin because Janis Joplin had kind of set her eyes on Delaney and he was in her radar that she was wanting him so Bonnie was a little worried about that of course you mentioned Janis Joplin uh, finishing off the show early the following morning mm-hmm. um, and this was of course only a couple of months before we lost Janis so tell me about Janis Joplin's set what do you remember about that well she had again one assumes that she'd been waiting a long time and was probably drinking fairly heavily by then mm-hmm. but uh, she put on a great show I mean it was just tight from the beginning I remember she opened up with Tell Mama you know, the old, uh, was that, like, I think it was like a Ruth Brown song mm-hmm. and uh, an R&B song. And the band that she had backing her, called the Full Tilt Boogie Band, they were uh, four-fifths Canadians. These were guys who had played with Ronnie Hawkins, you know, after, you know, Levon Helm and Robbie Robertson, after sure. those guys had left. So they were a tight band. They were used to playing together. And they were the band she, she always should have had behind her. Very, wow. very tough, solid rock and sound. And, uh, you know, again, she played, you know, Peace of My Heart, of course. And a number of the songs that would end up on Pearl, the mm-hmm. album that would be released after her death, which she was in the, in the midst of recording when the, when the tour came along. Yeah. Uh, she was dynamic. She was great. And, and, and during her set, um, somebody, some guy, <laughs> wandered up on stage. And, Again and, with the wandering on stage. Yeah, and walked up to Janice and said, uh, how about a kiss for the boys from Manitoba? And so she <laughs> looked at him and said, okay. And she kissed him. Of course, the crowd erupted. And sure. then he, as he's wandering off the stage, he hauled us to the band members. Thanks, guys. And, you know, he doesn't have a mic. Janice Joplin has the mic. And she says, what are you thanking them for? They didn't do nothing for you. Wow. Okay, just wandering up on stage. Wow. And no security. That's so wild. I remember Buddy Guy performing uh, in, the, in the middle of the afternoon. Oh, he was great, of course. But he had uh, a guitar cord that must have been 300 feet long. And he had this really big guy holding the cord, kind of all kind of wrapped, coiled up. Mm-hmm. And he would let out the cord more and more as Buddy began to move more and more on the stage. And Buddy came down off the stage and right into the audience and walked through the audience playing as this guy was letting out more and more cord. Yeah. Uh, just this just sense of, of being kind of comfortable with and one with the audience. Sure. Very, very cool. A little bit easier these days with the wireless. Yeah, Not so much with the cable. And of course, as we mentioned, uh, it was only a few months later that uh, Janice would be gone. And uh, there was not only her performance at uh, the Festival Express show at Winnipeg Stadium, but that sweet moment at Memorial Park. And so the whole thing becomes a little bit bittersweet. Incidentally, as you know, uh, Janice, as much as she might have been drinking, was reportedly off drugs at the time. And that's sort of what contributed to her death is when she did have a little taste in Los Angeles, it was too much for her. And that's apparently what caused her death. So if she had been on something here in Winnipeg, apparently it was alcohol only. Yeah, and and Andy Mellon had said that they shared a drink of Southern Comfort, which of course was the signal drink of hers. Yeah, you're right. Um, it's sad that she got a taste, as you say, and, and uh, then shot up some heroin. And it was, you know, during sessions for the album, the mm-hmm. final sessions, and OD'd. So, again, sad drug misadventure. Yeah. Really, the Festival Express was the last you know, real tour that she had done. She did yeah. some sporadic gigs after that, but mostly focusing on recording that, uh, that final album, uh, Pearl, that came out. Yeah. So, I mean, that also, as you say, the, the, the Winnipeg story of, of her and the Fountain, 
at Memorial Park and the performance. But the fact that three months later she would be dead, mm-hmm. you know, again, uh, sort of creates that melancholy feel about uh, this uh, Festival Express performance here in Winnipeg. Yeah. You know, the band for me was a big deal. They, they were the second last act. They were on before Janis Joplin. Mm-hmm. And to hear... You know, to hear and watch and see Lee Von Helm singing the night they drove old Dixie down live. That was, uh, you know, one of those moments that you never forget as well. Yeah, that must have been incredibly powerful. It was. I mean, it's not. I mean, Janice is a great stage performer, and she works the stage and she works the audience. The band isn't like that. The band is all about the music. You know, they they, they pretty much just stand still and perform. But they recreated. I mean, they'd only had two albums out: music from Big Pink and then the Brown album called just called the band. Mm-hmm. But you know, some of their best known stuff was from that uh, from those two albums. So it was uh, a very very special moment watching their set, and there was almost like a reverence in the audience. You know, listening to them. You know, very quietly. Uh, you know, nobody screaming, hooting and howling or anything like that because their music, you know, kind of dictated that sort of a respect and a reverence to what they played. And I remember yeah. the encore was slipping and sliding, you know, I think it's a little Richard song. Wow. And it was just, you know, okay, really a raucous tune with Levon singing. I can only imagine how powerful uh, the night they drove old Dixie down must have been, especially only a couple of months after Kent State and that tragedy and, of course, the other protests and things with the Vietnam War that were going on in the States. It must have been incredible. When you consider the context of the times, and I, mean, I talk about how there was great music and all of that, but we can't forget uh, the fact that uh, the backdrop in North America to all of this was the Vietnam War mm-hmm. and the protests that went on. And, uh, you know, let's keep in mind, too, that... The big song was Ohio, you know, by Winnipeg or Neil Young, sure. recorded with Crosby, Stills, and Nash, which was Neil's reaction to the horror of Kent State, mm-hmm. you know, a few months earlier. So certainly for uh, most of these musicians who were Americans on that tour and on that train, Vietnam was uh, more than just something that we just watched on the news. It was a, it was real for them. Purely guessing, it must have been being up here in Canada with these kind of events. It might have been uh, a bit of a breath of fresh air for them, sort of oh, to be out of that political climate for a little bit. I'm sure. I'm sure it was. You know, I mean, Canadians, we, you know, we're not as politically charged <laughs> as, as Americans are. Mm-hmm. And again, the beautiful countryside. I mean, you know, even if you were drinking yourself into a stupor, you could look <laughs> out the window and see some pretty nice. <laughs> Pretty nice countryside going through uh, the yeah. Canadian Shield. And ultimately, as storied as the Festival Express Tour is, and as momentous as it is in Winnipeg music history, as you mentioned, the promoters lost their shirt on the thing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah they lost a million dollars. I mean, they, clearly, they, they, they underestimated the anticipated costs that putting this kind of a show on. I mean, they, they budgeted for 500000 I'm sure they spent 500000 just on the booze for the whole trip. Well, as you know, if you want something to go well financially, put a Junior Eaton on it, right? <laughs> what could possibly go wrong? Exactly. And as amazing as this event was two months later was Man Pop with Led Zeppelin at Al Iron Butterfly. And I guess you and I will be talking again in a couple of months because we'll have to commemorate that as well. So I'll look forward to it. Yes, the 50th anniversary of that show. Yeah. Winnipeg music historian John Anderson, thanks a lot for this. Thanks, Kelly.